Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Garvia Bailey, broadcaster, art journalist, co-founder of jazzcast.ca. Hello. Welcome Hello. to Canada. Hello. I am so happy to be here, Jesse Wenty. I am so happy to be here. I am Jesse Wenty, not <laughs> Jesse Brown. I know. It's it's the rolling Jessies here. It's cool. Well, you don't want to have too much... Uh, too much Jesse action. Yeah. We don't want to enter the convergence too quickly. <laughs> We're going to talk about today on Canada Land Shortcuts uh, the ongoing process of colonization in Canada by Netflix. Oh man. It's it's a trouble. Speaking of colonialism, the government just passed a toothless indigenous languages legislation yesterday and copyright infringement a part of our heritage. <laughs> Maybe a minute. A partial minute in our heritage. <laughs> That's it. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Nabia Youssef, Stephen Zink, Selena Ross, Gareth Whittingham, Desiree Eisner, Amanda Jete Knox, Candice Petrus, and Samuel Cervantes. It's not my favorite podcast. It's not even my favorite podcast that asks me for money. But I support Canada Land because after listening for several years, it's encouraged me to pay closer attention to and be more critical of the news. It is a continual reminder of the importance of journalism, which I think is necessary. This episode of Shortcuts is also brought to you in part by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. One of the books I love on this is Tanya Tagak's Split Tooth, performed by Tanya Tagak. Tanya herself. It's an amazing read of an amazing book. And right now, if you start a 30-day trial, your first Audible book is free. So you got one just in the bag. Done. And you've got a recommendation to go with it. So learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash Canada. So Garvia, I don't know if you heard about what Catherine Tate, the CEO oh, of I've the heard CBC, some yes, that she was at 
Primetime Ottawa, which is the big annual gathering of all the TV industry and, and moving image industry there in Ottawa. I was there, although I must admit I was not in the room. You weren't at the session. I ah. was not at the session. I was in an adjacent room. But let me tell you, as soon as Catherine Tate said what she said, there was a quick mad dash made by all the indigenous people in that room to quickly tell me what she had said. I think we actually have a clip to hear exactly her words. So I'm going to just go a little off script because I was thinking um, about the British Empire and um, how if you were there and you were the Viceroy of India, um, you would feel that you were doing only good for the people of India. (laughs) Or similarly, if you were in French Africa, you would think, I'm educating them, I'm bringing up, they bring their resources to the world, and I am helping them. There was a time where cultural imperialism was absolutely accepted. And in fact, we were, if you're a history student, you would be proud of the contribution that these great empires gave. I would say we are at the beginning of a new empire. So there is Catherine Tate, CEO of CBC, at primetime. Now, I have no words. <laughs> I'm supposed to have words. I, I have no words. Do you think, you know, I got into a couple arguments on Twitter, some CBC people as well. You know, I want to be generous. Absolutely. Here, Garvia. And so I think I understand what she was trying to say in terms of the threat that foreign services like Netflix or Amazon or frankly Facebook and Google, you know, that have their their head offices are not in Canada. They don't really report to Canadian people, uh, and yet they derive massive amounts of revenue from from Canada. It's clear that that's what she meant. To me, where I stumble, and let me know if if you also trip up on this same, is in the analogy, of course, that she uses comparing Netflix and that sort of free market. Capitalism is what I would describe Netflix to, well, the Raj, you know, basically right. British imperialism and and name specifically India and Africa. I guess that's where I, I join you with not sure I have the words. I didn't have the words. I'm just going to jump in because the part of that clip, part of her, her speech on it was she, she said something like, I was just thinking about this. I'm just going to go off <laughs> off script here. And this just came to me. And I thought when I read it, I thought, how does that kind of sort of flippant analogy just pop into your head? And then you go to the point where I'm going to share this with a room full of people. Uh, She talked about it as being ham fisted. I felt that not only was it ham fisted, it was kind of a laissez faire attitude towards something that, you know, it's a nod to this very core white supremacy that mm. that happened but it's done in sort of like i'm just going to throw it out here kind of casually and it's going to be a great analogy and people are going to dig it and maybe not expect this kind of pushback she is a media professional in this day and age in 2019 so that's where i start to question where your your thinking could be and what the roots of it are really uh because in 2019 as a media professional, 
you pick your words and you pick them well because everyone is listening and everyone is recording. And you are not only a media professional, you are the head of the CBC. So I didn't want to be too knee jerk in it. Mm. But as soon as I saw it, I felt I just gave one of those black lady side eyes like, girl, girl, girl. Yeah, I, th- I think that was we were having the same side. <laughs> OK, eye. We good. Were side <laughs> simultaneously yeah and i mean look i I mean first of all you know full disclosure i still have a relationship with the cbc absolutely uh, yeah sure as a as a freelancer you had a relationship with the cbc so and maybe someday we'll have another relationship with the cbc but that doesn't to me that doesn't negate the fact that missteps happen but you have to own them no and i think your point about you know she says she's going to go off script and that you know, increasingly, that seems unwise <laughs> Don't for do it. leaders of all sorts to go off script. And, you know, I gave a, a brief presentation at that same event, and I stuck incredibly to script because, you know, I, I took the time to craft it. I want to stick to it. I mean, I think for me, as well as the obvious inappropriateness of the analogy, it's also the positionality of her. You know, as you mentioned, she's the CEO of the CBC. And... If we're to be truly honest about the CBC and its relation to Canadians and Canadian history, we should also be honest that it has assisted maybe a very generous way or um, proselytized for British imperialism in Canada. And I think that's where I struggled with it, is that as the CEO of the CBC, there should be some idea of that history as well, that, that, that you are now the head of an organization that helped promote British imperialism on indigenous lands and in many ways still does that. And so there's certainly the criticism of should one throw rocks when you're inside the glass house, let alone on the outside of it. And then my thoughts, and this is true of whenever, you know, because I have had a relationship with the CBC for 23 years, whenever there's a a misstep like this at the CBC, my first thought always goes to the staff, the indigenous staff there. And there were some in the room at that event. And just imagining what it feels like well, you're, to them. For, and you, you find yourself in the unenviable position of both defending and being very much a critic of what was just said. So you have to you have to sort of walk this very dangerous line as far as career wise goes, because you know that what was that you have to call it out. You must. But at the same time, this is the CEO of the CBC. This is a person that's buttering your bread. You want to have the platform. You realize that it was perhaps a misstep. But I keep going back to it. We're not in the day and age where missteps are just that. They don't happen in a bubble. They become something much larger. And very often those missteps belie something that's much bigger in the thinking of the individual. So then you're also, as a staff member, internalizing that. And that's not easy to deal with. I mean, I really I do applaud the CBC because I think their indigenous programming and the the initiatives have been unbelievable. But at the same time, when you have your CEO guns blazing, going off the top of her head and coming out with something like that, I'm I feel bad for those staff members because I've been in that position where you have to defend somehow, you know, the dude that's buttering your bread. Yeah, absolutely. And. It struck me as about a larger issue because, you know, you and I are both advocates for increased representation within the Canadian media broadly, but journalism, maybe even specifically Mm -hmm. in the newsrooms that you and I have both traversed throughout our careers. And 
it struck me that, you know, this is one of the real challenges, even as newsrooms and all places begin to diversify, is that management practice is also going to have to change because the relationships that marginalized people in your company, media or otherwise, they're going to have relationships to their community that the organization likely does not. And in fact, it's likely that the organization has hired this person in part to extend or try to have a relationship with those communities. And then when you have missteps like this, there's a pressure on those individuals that it doesn't actually touch the organization. It's it's about their relationship back to their community. And suddenly, as you suggest, it's not just about your job. Suddenly, you're also balancing your credibility within the community, likely a community you've been tasked to help the organization reach out to and have their stories told on their platforms. We're really going to have to, as companies do this, and they should, I think management's really going to have to look at itself, both in terms of is it diversifying at the same rate that it's diversifying frontline staff, but also you need to protect those relationships. If you're hiring people to have relationships with communities you don't have, it's just as important. The hiring isn't good enough. It's just as important to then make sure that those people can maintain and create more relationships with that community. And this, I think, makes it harder. Mm -hmm. Or at least, at the very least, um, start that process of putting uh, these individuals into positions of power where they're the ones sitting on the stage talking about these these issues. It, it could be Netflix. It could be, you know, whatever's happening in telecommunications. The idea of not, you know, ghettoizing these voices, for lack of a better term, and making sure that it's not just I'm hiring this person and this is this is great. This is a link to a community, but giving the opportunities for those individuals to be sitting on those stages and having these conversations where it would not enter into your mind or my mind to start talking about British imperialism and talking about Netflix. It just would not. It's such a great point. Because <laughs> I, I, one of my thoughts leading up to this podcast, this conversation with you was, could I imagine I'm just trying an, an indigenous CEO of the CBC ever making that analogy? And I cannot, I cannot imagine it just wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah. And I think that's that's certainly a big crux of it. I think what's lost, of course, is her actual point. Right. About about Which Netflix. is a, it's an important point. And I you know what, in, in thinking about this, I really did want to hear your opinion on, you know, mm. beyond, you know, the way that she she phrased it. But uh, it is an important point. We have been grappling with the idea of of ourselves as Canadians being inundated with American culture and losing our own culture ever since, I don't know, the Jolly Green Giant came on, you know, the television. So I think her point is a good point. I think it's important that we start talking about it. CBC right now is ranked 16th out of 18 countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in the round roundup for uh, funding for public broadcasting. So we're not the CBC is not doing well in that. So this conversation doesn't come out of nowhere. They have to find a way to uh, shore up revenue from the government and commercially. And so when something like Netflix is thrown into the uh, the pot, the disruption is real. And it's a disruption to our public broadcaster. And that's something that we own. So the conversation is so very important. I mean, Netflix doesn't contribute to the Canadian Media Fund. We don't collect HST or GST from something like Netflix. It's something that is, as much as we're getting out of it, 
we are also giving up quite a bit in having a behemoth like Netflix be part of the the story. And I could see why the CBC would have to start talking about it, because who else is going to talk about it? Well, I mean, th- I mean, lots of people actually at primetime talk about it. There was a session with, you know, the public policy mm. head of Netflix in Canada. Right. Who used to work for the CMF. And, you know, he was grilled. He got lambasted by the entire room, you know, for a variety of reasons. But really, the central one being... You know, you're taking a lot of revenue out of the country. What are you putting in? And granted, there is a is a deal, you know, that 500 million spend over five years that, that was struck. That's right, right. But, the, you know, there's not a lot of teeth in sort of how that money gets spent. And so there's a lot of sadness. And, you know, CMF, which is funded through the telecoms, because cable revenues are down, their amount of money is down. They had to get a top up from the the federal government. So there is an issue in that as we move more, as the business model gets disrupted, and not just Netflix, but all content moves to a different business model, the one that we're currently not regulating in the same way. What is going to left be funding Mm -hmm. Canadian content? And certainly, you know, the Broadcasting Act is, is up for review and there's been lots of submissions and one not universally, but there's a common thread in many of them about having players like Netflix, players like Amazon, as well as Google and Facebook. And I think maybe even more importantly than any of the individual platforms is the cable, what's described as the integrated BDUs we're getting at the policy speak here. But but basically, you know, the giant cable companies who Mm -hmm. pay in who pay in based on their cable revenue, but not their internet revenue. And certainly I'm a believer that you actually need to have from all sides. So it's not just about Netflix. It's also getting Rogers and Bell and all the major cable providers to pay out on the internet side mm-hmm. where where most of us or many of us are increasingly accessing content from Canada, from around the world. So I do think there needs to be that conversation has to happen now as well because it's already happening. I mean, everyone is cutting their cable. We're not, we are moving to digital on all realms, the way that we consume and the way that we produce. So um, if that conversation isn't dealt with like today, 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 then we are going to see an erosion of what, who we are as Canadians or the idea of, of CanCon and just the ability for something like the CBC to exist. And these other companies to exist as well. But I, I think the real solution is regulating all of it. All of it has to be regulated. All contribute. And I think with Netflix, as we've seen in Europe, because a lot of European countries have imposed content regulations on Netflix, is there's every reason for us to say to those companies, there needs to be an engagement, a display, exhibition of Canadian content to Canadians. We don't want pure extraction industries that take out and don't leave back. So there's, there'll certainly be lots of time. I wonder if, if one thing Mm. that Netflix currently doesn't play, but there's been a lot of (laughs) talk about. Right. Are those heritage minutes? Oh yeah. (laughs) This is a story. I was, this one caught me off guard. I did not see this one coming. You know. you know what? Every now and again, the CPC puts something up <laughs> and and I think this is going to be my daily laugh. It's going to be, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. I could just see the, the screen grab and I know. Mm. <laughs> we're, we're of course talking about this um, fake Heritage Minute. We should make sure right. we say it's fake off the top. Put out by the, the CPC political party, Andrew Scheer, his group put it out. 
And it was, you know, a, a slam job against Justin Trudeau. It was a very poorly executed slam job. Well, this is my my this is my oh, big problem, Garcia. Yes. The quality. S- spoof heritage minutes all you want, <laughs> frankly. On some level, I'm it's parody. They don't mind. I'm up for a good laugh. They actually don't mind. The execution in this case is where I really come to dispute because it was not funny or good yeah. in any way. Whereas the heritage minutes themselves are like very finely produced. They're fantastic. <laughs> they really are. This was nothing like that. Mm. So even from a you fooled me. It never for a once fooled me that it was a heritage minute. So I really dispute this mm-hmm. on qualitative ground. I'm telling you, you know what? It It's someone's dad down the street doing the narration and then it's shot on a, you know, an iPod 3. I don't even know if they exist anymore. The first <laughs> video. And then it's, you know, edited by my sister's, you know, grade eight class. It was just so poorly, poorly executed. But also, I felt that it was such an insult to slap the Heritage Minute. Because the Heritage Minutes, there are parodies, like you said. There are parodies of of those. And they're done very well. And it's very funny. And it's obvious that it's parody. But I think in, in this case, the issue that uh, Historica Canada had with it is that it was a political parody. Mm. And they have been nonpartisan. That has been what they have kind of built their brand on. Their stories go across political spectrum. You don't even you don't have any idea if it's coming from a liberal perspective or conservative perspective or you have no clue of that. And that is that's a wonderful part of the Heritage Minutes. They're educational snippets. And that's how they were produced all the way back when they started in 1991. It started as that as an educational tool. And um, and like you said, the production of them has been so slick and so well done and so beautifully executed that in a minute. You go on an emotional roller coaster with the best of them. I did anyway. Wow, you I really love these. I things. do. I really do because I'm. I'm always. I'm very enamored with that potency of storytelling, where you can cram in that much information, that much production value, and it's just like it's one minute mm. of of bliss for me. A lot of them. Some of them, eh, but a lot of them are excellent. So I think a major part of the issue is that um, the Historica folks are saying that they are not for profit. They are dependent on people to just get on board and and send them money to make these heritage minutes. So when something like this happens, what you find is that there's a certain segment that has no idea, that that hasn't gone back and to realize that this is not something from Historica Canada. So Anthony Wilson Smith of Historica Canada has already been been talking about the backlash that they have faced, that they have had donors and funders that have said, what are you doing? Why would you be part of this smear campaign against our prime minister, whatever it is, and we're we're retracting our money? We know that in the way that media works, it's always the lie or the parody or the that's the thing that we hang the hat on. The retraction later usually doesn't get the same traction as the actual thing. So now Anthony and his crew have to do this damage control around this and and repair what is really a great brand, an important brand, I think, for Canadians. So my heart is kind of going out to them because this, once again, ham-fisted approach at comedy or parody or whatever it was, has done more damage to an excellent brand than it really needed to do. It wasn't worth it. What I'm saying is that <laughs> what we saw was not <laughs> worth the trouble that it has created. See, we return to the, the qualitative assessment. that The Conservative Party, of course, they removed 
They did. The heritage branding. They sent out in a tweet. They said, we've removed all heritage minute branding from the video we posted over the weekend. Our intention was simply to use a recognizable and often parodied segment to highlight Justin Trudeau's many ethical breaches. That was one out of three. I won't bother reading the rest <laughs> of the rest in that uh, tweet chain. But um, A, I think this is such a very Canadian mm-hmm. controversy. That, it really is. That a a awful, a poorly executed parody of these little bite-sized one-minute all-we-can-take-of-Canadian-history segments <laughs> is somehow all riled us up. I think it is so perfectly Canadian <laughs> that this is this is what we've been upset about this week. And I'm not to disparage the historical sure. Canada folks, because I, I have lots of friends who've made mm-hmm. Heritage Minutes, but just the controversy around it, it does feel exactly like the sort of thing that is a controversy in Well, Canada. I guess I am Canadian because I am <laughs> outraged. I love, I love your outrage. I am outraged. I went down a rabbit hole of Heritage Minutes. Because you we did. were going to be talking about this. Yes, I did. I did. There I'm is actually, of what's down there. I'm, I'm telling you, there is some wonderful stuff. There is a, a journalist, uh, Justin McElroy. He compiled a top 10 list of heritage moments. So first I started there and then it just it took up the rest of my evening. But there's some wonderful moments. Do you have a favorite? A uh, favorite heritage minute? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, okay, so so bias. I mean, I know the people who made this particular okay, sure. one, but it's and it's a relatively recent one on treaty, mm. and it's about it's specifically Treaty Nine in Canada. It just tells you know a very quick uh, story, and I really liked that one because I think it actually imparts more. <laughs> it suggests more about treaty in one minute yeah. than many Canadians will learn about the treaties here in their entire scholastic career. Sure. Uh, certainly, at least when I went to school. I liked that one. There's a, a very good one around Chani Wenjack. Yes. Uh, Excellent also, one. Yeah. Uh, was really good. And then the one I remember, the one that <laughs> sticks out for me is yes. the one about Superman. Oh, I, oh yes, of course. In Lois Lane. In Lois yes. Lane. And that Superman was like a Canadian <laughs> invention and he hands her out the train window, the first so drawing of so that one I remember. And the Halifax explosion. Yeah, of course. That one was stunning. That was a feature film in one minute. It took you from... Wait a minute. Rem- it really was. <laughs> I know. Jesse went to you know from feature films, but I remember seeing that and feeling like this was just... This uh, the the tension was building. Is the is the Morse code is going to get through? Is he going to be able to stop the train? What's going to happen? It was high drama. It's true. It's great storytelling in a minute. Beautiful. So did you down this rabbit hole? Yes. Were you able to find like gems that stood out to you? Your your favorites? Well, I I think that one was a favorite. I think Richard Pierpoint was a favorite one as well. Who uh, fought for the loyalists? Because that one takes you from Senegal to America, Mm. to Nova Scotia. Like, it's all in a minute, Jesse. It all happens in a minute. How are they doing this? I mean, whatever mojo that it is that they're working, I want a part of that, that they can do it all in one minute. That one's an excellent one. So this is my thing. Going back to this whole thing, please do not mess with Heritage Minutes unless you're going to do it properly, unless you're going to do it and you're going to do it with the respect that the minutes deserve. Right. I, I'm here with that. And I think we have we've done Canada land and you and I have done our part <laughs> for Historica Canada and the Heritage Minutes this time around. Find them, people. Give them a watch.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Now, Garvey, as you know, on this show, there's a segment called Duly Noted. Yes, duly noted. Do you oh, have no. <laughs> something for us to note duly? I certainly do. Do you want to go first or should, uh, should oh, I? Oh, no, please. Oh, please. me? Okay. Well, this came across my desk, uh, and I think it's a huge story because over the course of the last little while, we have talked about borders and immigration and how important those are. So this story is about the Canada Border Services Agency itself. So they have the authority to detain and search Canadians, carry out deportations, and have people investigated. Well, recently, a CBC special investigation, so a hat tip to Diana Swain and Andreas Wesley and Stephen Davis, they came out with this report that the CBSA has 1,200 allegations against their own staff over a two and a half year period from 2016 to the middle of 2018. So that's according to the CBSA's own release documents. So these border agents, the abuses that have are listed of the 1200, everything from, you know, something like napping on the job, sure, to excessive force, criminal association, sexual assault, just a myriad of offenses. These are the complaints that are actually filed. You have to remember that, that of the 1,200, these are the ones that actually go down on paper. Lawyers are uh, calling this the tip of the iceberg as far as what is actually happening with the uh, Canadian Border Services Agency, because we know the people that are dealing with the CBSA are already in a vulnerable position. So perhaps dealing with immigration issues and, and being in that world, you're not going to report that person that you're going to be having to deal with to get through this issue. So it's a heavy, heavy story. And the the question is, 
what has happened to all of these reports of the 1,200 of these charges? What has happened? The answer is not a lot because the CBSA, they police themselves. There's no outside agency. They are both investigator and perpetrator, and we all know how well that generally works. There isn't a clear indication of how the cases were handled, how the accused agents were dealt with. The liberal government right now has promised legislation that will address the lack of proper oversight, but for now, they police themselves. So as we move into an election year, as we start really talking about uh, border security around the world, the question is, who are the people that are securing our borders? I think it's a huge story. I'm surprised it hasn't been picked up. The report is timely, and it's one that we should keep looking at. Very duly noted. My duly noted is of the more uh, ridiculous variety, although <laughs> perhaps there is some some danger here. And that's a Canadian character by the name of Gavin McInnes. Oh! Yeah, I'm sorry to sully this broadcast with this discussion, but I found the, the irony of Mr. McGinnis's last week maybe too rich for me to pass up. Um, Mr. McGinnis, as many will know, was one of the co-founders of Vice back in the, the, the days, has gone on to... Alt, some measure of alt-right media fame, founded uh, perhaps most famously the Proud Boys organization or whatever they are. And th that organization was then has been labeled by the Southern Poverty uh, Law Center as a hate group. Mr. McGinnis is suing the Southern Poverty Law Center, saying that that designation basically made him untouchable. And then I found it then the next day, somewhat ironic, that that untouchableness did not extend to Canada's own rebel media, which has hired Mr. McGinnis back. Although I, I, he is playing his progressive SJW character, Miles <laughs> McGinnis, because, yeah, we really wanted him back. Uh, I, I just find that amusing that untouchable still allows for employment <laughs> At Rebel Media. He's failing up. Yeah. I, <laughs> or so, something. Or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that goes. Rebel Media, of course, home to many other outcast, media outcasts of all varieties there. So I just wanted to duly note that you can be unhirable except for at Rebel Media. Duly noted. <laughs> and now, Garvia, this uh, new legislation we talked a little bit about regulating Netflix and all of these things, Heritage Minutes. But um, big news, certainly in, in my community, was the announcement of this new Indigenous Languages Act. The new Office of the Commissioner of Indigenous Languages uh, is, is the key part of this being set up. This was heralded by both the government, the, the Heritage Minister, Pablo Rodriguez, as well as head of the AFN, the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Belgard. So lots of people were, were certainly anticipating this legislation, I have to say, I, I feel like maybe the legislation landed with a bit of a, a thud in terms of what it actually contains, because um, it's not a lot is, is what it contains. It mostly sets up this office, um, a process and, and oversight for the office and what they will, their sort of uh, uh, circle of influence and what they can do. But there's no real guarantee of funding of major, it suggests educational supports, but does not really spell that out. As uh, ITK, uh, this is the, the organization that governs 60,000 Indigenous peoples, the, its president, Natan Obed, he said this, that the Office of the Commissioner of Indigenous Languages is little more than a new title 
for the existing Aboriginal Languages Initiative Program, a federal office that has largely failed to halt the decline of Indigenous languages, despite having a mission similar to that of the new Liberal plan. Many Inuit also pointed out that this bill does not have any Inuit-specific mentions in it. So I think for, for certainly for me, and uh, I, the reaction that, that I seem to see from a lot of Indigenous peoples was color us a bit unimpressed with this uh, legislation. I think it went beyond Indigenous people because I saw the legislation and, and was clearly um, taking a look at, at how it rolled out and what the response was. And as you aptly put it, toothless is what it came out to be, because I, I was waiting for the the funding that would be going towards this, that some sort of the plan, billions of dollars. the billions of dollars, <laughs> the planning around it. How would this look? What kind of infrastructure would have to be built around it? All of those things. And what we ended up with was something that was just like, you know, we have a title for a little corner of the government that will talk about this ad nauseum is what I'm hearing. I'm not sure if that's what's actually happening, but that's what it sounded like. Sure. So yeah. the optics to me are are that, that it is toothless. Um, uh, Wab Canoe tweeted out, if feds want to undo some of the damage they've done to Indigenous languages, they should be funding community-driven Indigenous immersion schools and after-school programs. I did not see anything around that. Hayden King um, had said, he's the executive director of the Yellowhead Institute at Ryerson University in Toronto here. And he said the legislation is disappointing because it lacks any substantive contribution to language revitalization and doesn't add anything new to the conversation. That's not a ringing endorsement of this legislation. No, and I think you're you're echoing some sentiments that I certainly heard from non-Indigenous people, which was... The feeling that for many, they voted for this government expressly because they thought they were going to fix or help the relationship. And the disappointment expressed then by Indigenous peoples over this legislation led them to think, why did I vote if you're not actually going to fix this legislation? I mean, I think the big piece that was probably, sadly, always aspirational, but I was certainly looking for, was why is there no official language? designation. And yes, it's complex because there's many different language groups, many different languages, indigenous languages in in Canada. But to have any official languages in Canada, to Mm -hmm. me, and not (laughs) include indigenous languages is ultimately then just purely a colonial thing. Because I would hope at this point in 2019, we all understand that, well, the official languages of this land... right are actually not English mm-hmm. and French. They're the other indigenous languages. Uh, they're the indigenous languages that have been spoken for millennia on these lands. So I think that was perhaps aspirational, but it really shouldn't be. You know, I, I think my disappointment comes from when we have legislation. It's a lot to have legislation, whether it passes or fails. Mm-hmm. And you put a lot of energy into it, and then it sticks around for a long time. So you don't have a lot of opportunities to get it right. And it feels like this is not as right as it should be. And that's, I think, the big disappointment. It feels like we're just going to have to fight for a lot of the same issues we had already, many, and you know, not just myself, but many, have already been fighting for. We're just going to have to fight for them all over again because they're not contained in this bill. On the media side, because we're a media uh, Mm -hmm. show – To me, you can't have support for Indigenous languages 
if that's not also included in places like the Broadcasting Act, right? like uh, in the Telecommunications Act, to actually compel Indigenous languages, not just we absolutely need to have community-driven, educational first, those support. We also need to hear Indigenous languages just much, much more, specifically in the media. You know, I think we need to that's how these things become normalized, right? Is just hearing them over and over and over again until it's not a big deal. And I think we are so far from that. And so from a media standpoint, one of the teeth I would have liked to have seen in this, or, I mean, maybe there's a way to address it in the Broadcasting Act, um, because that piece of legislation is not, we haven't seen that one yet, is there needs to be support for Indigenous language media in Canada. Journalism, scripted, all of the various types of media. We just need those supports. Because, you know, a movie in Indigenous language can travel and, and mean a lot more, has its own value, as well as having classrooms and teaching in the languages, in Indigenous languages as well. I think I think we can do all of that. And we should be doing all of that. And we should be doing all oh, of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what we needed to see. Yeah. And, you know, to add to that that part, I'm really... The whole educational part of it is the part that, you know, you grab that media baton, you run with it. I'm with you. Uh, but that educational part, I, I sit here and think about the territories that we sit on and why why would we not have the language uh, indigenous to this territory taught in the schools that my kid would go to? Why would that not be an option for her to take that as a, a class in high school as well as her French class? You know, even having the option or having it be a part of the curriculum, that is what feeds into this next generation of journalists or creators or uh, media, uh, you know, professionals that we see now. If if it becomes a natural part of who we are as Canadians, which it is, and that's that's why I really feel like that educational component is so like it's missing in a way that it gets down into the, your deepest soul because it is such a blatant disregard for who we are and where we came from as Canadian people. Do you speak uh, a language? I don't. I'm trying. Are you uh, learning? I'm trying. It's a slow. What about your kids? Also trying. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, they hear more of it than maybe I did. So I, I'm hopeful, but it's you know, my family had it taken from us uh, through residential school. So I didn't grow up in my language. So it will be a journey as an adult. But what's fascinating is that I'm not alone. There's many, many right. doing that. And in fact, the young people increasingly do. You know, if you if you grew up in your community, there was a few generations where that was not true. And I think now we're starting to see where that's beginning to be true again. And I think you're so right in that if we want Indigenous language media, we actually need to have the, it's all part of a piece mm -hmm. that to have that, you have to graduate people who are already fluent in those uh, languages. So for that, just let me say miigwech, chi miigwech for that. And that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse Wente. Canada Land is at Canada Land and CanadaLandShow.com. Garvia, where can people find you? Well, they can find me at GarveyBailey.com. There's there. I'm also on Twitter, Garvey's Child. Marcus Garvey, shout out. Garvey's Child on Twitter. And of course, uh, you should visit JazzCast.ca. Oh, absolutely. 
And this episode was produced by David Crosby. Candleland's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what Canada Land does and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of their podcasts, please support them at patreon.com slash Canada Land. Do it. Thank you.